we are here with, uh, actually, we'll start off with what we're drinking, man. So David just hooked us up. Is it Turkish? Just Cuban. Cuban. Cuban espresso, man. I love Cuban espresso. So do I. I you know what? You know what? Uh, we should name this celebration: the Espresso Loco, after the Pollo Loco problems that we just that ran into. I don't know, man. Well, we're actually consuming it. Okay, well, we'll see what happens. Well, actually, remind me because we need to talk about the Pollo Loco problem yeah, out of California, man. I think we're going to be okay because you've got peace tea, so that's kind of like give you the yin peace, and yang. Yeah, peace tea, uh, the espresso loco, and uh, yes, some dip and some monster and some body armor, man. So, uh, so yeah, we're here with Ryan, so we're stoked. We've been waiting for this one for a while. I'm going to let Ryan tell you his background, so... I don't screw anything up, but we've known each other for a long time, man, since you moved over and a ways back. Yeah, yeah. And uh from the army and and then then I worked for you a bunch on like pre deployment stuff and all that other crap, man. So yeah, now you're you're forced out just yeah. because of some stupid neck thing that yep. you can't it, jump. Yeah. It's it's retarded, but it's okay though. It's all right. So yeah, Ryan, let's let's let Ryan introduce himself so I don't piss hello, Ryan off. hello party people. My name's Ryan. Uh <laughs> Put welcome. your hands up in the air. Welcome. I'm, yeah, we'll get we'll raise the roof a little bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so kind of I started off in the Marine Corps as an infantry guy. Went to a sniper platoon while I was there. Uh, started picking up a lot of the uh, EMS stuff, the basic EMT uh, course and the requirements just to have some medical training because we had one corpsman didn't really have those capabilities. Kind of got tired of being in the Marine Corps. Decided that I should go maybe to the Army. They had a thing called Special Forces. Interesting. Yeah, it was, and they have M4s. They used <laughs> M16 A2 service rifles at the time. And they also didn't have mag lights on the bottom, which I kind of, I wish I would have kept mine yeah. from the Marine Corps. And my flak jacket. <laughs> like, that's also, like, it helps you retain, like, your high weight standards. Probably <laughs> sweating so much. But, uh, so I went from there to uh, uh, Special Forces. I was at 18 Delta. Then just recently retired from USASOC as an assault medic. So, just got out in March, and now I'm over here. At a TMS and rescue craft, working with Sean every day, causing problems, solving some problems. Just disrupting, but, just yeah, disrupting. disrupting. And mostly, it's like causing problems for everybody around us. So <laughs> it's perfect. That's yeah. what we're doing. So you have a, a obviously a significant background uh, in a lot of stuff that I was looking at doing. When we were developing for TECC. So back a couple of years ago, uh, you would run a couple nutty CCPs and some experience running those and how you guys train and stuff. And so you were the one who actually helped us write that for TECC when we were building that up. So the small working group that we talk about uh, and when we've done that stuff for when we we're starting it for NTOA with uh, Dr. Gerald and all and bringing it into TECC, you were actually the one that was doing that then. We just couldn't really give you credit then. Yeah. Every once in a while, things work out right. You know? Yeah. You're in the closet. Yeah. You're in, I was, I, you're I, in the closet. You used to suck closet. I come out like, you know, maybe like once every other month. But yeah. When I do, it's, it's, it's special. But it is special. Yeah, it everyone is, really loves it. It is special. So, uh, yeah, before we get into it, so I don't forget. So we were just out doing some stuff with uh, an international team and some a group out of, um, out of USASOC also, out of SOCOM, and a group, a uh, federal team out on the West Coast. And we kept going past uh, the fast food place, the Pollo Loco. Yeah, I didn't know it was a big deal in California, but Siri recognizes it as a landmark. Really. We literally were trying to get back to LAX on the last day, and they were having us take a right at the Pollo Loco. Yeah, but 
We did not I'm stop like, at the point of local. We didn't, and that's that's where bad things happen. And so, you know, we're making, downhill. we're jesting, we're we're mocking a little yeah. bit of the pollo loco, where we're like, hey, I'm not going to eat any pollo yeah. unless it's loco. Yeah, and I was like, right? how how loco can a pollo be? Yeah, right. And that's probably what caused the like, bad voodoo to yeah, happen. I didn't think loco pollos could fly. Yeah, well, they're an angry they're an angry bird, and uh, a lot of people don't realize the reach and extent. Of how pissed off those birds get, man. I know we think they're tied in with MS13. Very well could some cartel stuff. Like very, I'm not really sure. Very well could be. And the reason we say that is we got back on that weekend, and then like the next day or two days after, like you get a head cold. Yeah. Then your ears, Explode then your eardrums, your eardrums rupture, eardrums yeah. rupture one at a time. One at a time with like green goop. I yeah. Have you took. You did. Yeah, he does have a picture. <laughs> that was king disgusting. It was. It looked like there was just like rotten yogurt coming out of my head. Or some sort of venereal disease from yeah, I don't south of the border. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I possibly. Who knows? I don't know if I went to Tijuana. I can't remember. I just yeah. woke up that next morning. <laughs> it was just really hot outside and sunny. The, po- the, the loco pollo came after you, man. <laughs> it got me good. <laughs> it did get you good. So we'll be doing a series of stuff, I think, uh, podcasts. But to start this one off, man, uh, episode one, the pollo loco, uh, we're going to talk about kind of a casualty management loco deal on how to frame that. So I'm going to let you talk a little bit about the Casavac stuff that's going on, and I'll kind of tie it into what's going on with TECC and our rescue task force and stuff like that. But what we see is a lot of people that want to be able to combine medical realize all of a sudden we need, we need a rescue component in this crap too. And sometimes things get complicated because we can't even access our patients because, you know, whether that's a, uh, a bird that went down, you know, for the military guys, or that's uh, chains and padlocks on a door for an active shooter event, or whatever the hell. Structure collapse. Structure like collapse. Fire. What, what? I mean, it's it's pretty much, and that's kind of the beauty of it is, is we try to create a structure that wasn't necessarily universal, but it was a structure that everybody has a problem in whenever they're running on something dynamic that's unpredictable, and we needed to create something to frame, some sort of framework where you could push assets when you're doing a planning phase or you're thinking about what equipment you need to carry or what's relevant for that. And so you got done. You are down at, uh, after SOMA, you went down to SOFIC, and I was out in Palm Springs kind of discussing a lot of the same things we're talking about now. And we came back and, and kind of put this framework together that's based on the environment. So just to rehash, I think what people need to realize when they're when they're doing this is the the magic happens, you know, where you can really make a difference in potentially saving somebody's life or you know, even if you're taking multiple casualties or or multiple kids out of a school or anything, this is there's a crossroads between the casualty pathology in the environmental pathology. Yeah, and that environmental pathology is just the unpredictable crap that you can't say. You still may have some sort of threat that's shooting at you or, or some sort of threat like that, but that threat can also be 2 o'clock in the morning. It can be weather conditions. It can be a collapse of a you know, secondary collapse of a structure. It can be fucking anything, really. Well, let's go back and talk about uh, care under fire. Yeah. So you, know, you got people shooting at you. you got a casualty down. And you know, return fire, right? That's what C says because it's... You know, everybody's in the military. So they've got their basic rifle drills, their basic battle drills. You know, if you're an individual, individual person, it's get up, I see he sees me, I'm down. You know, set up a base of fire, maneuver, eliminate the enemy, and that's kind of how you deal with that problem. But when it's not bullets in combat flying at you, like, how do you frame that? How do you go forward with that to 
get to that patient. I think that's kind of like where our, we started with it. Right, and, and, and from the civilian side, you know, the equivalent of, of your care under fire is is a direct threat. I think some agencies, um, even TECC, has a backslash with hot zone and warm zone, cold zone, when we start talking about care under fire, direct threat. But I think hopefully that'll work its way out to where we won't be utilizing that anymore, especially with the onset of C-burn and EOD issues, because using the terms that came from there into a dynamic state that's not geographically like, okay, your hot zone, because technically your hot zone is like, okay, here's the bomb or here's the agent. Now we go back X amount of space based on what that bomber agent is, and that's the red zone. Then we go X amount of meters out from there, and that's your warm zone. But when we're talking about your your phased um, care, it's it's not like that at all. There is no geographical range. It could just be a corner yep. that provides good cover. And um, then you just work out of that, and, kind of and that, that sun, all of a sudden is your is you know your tactical field care, your indirect threat care. We can go more, especially if you have a security element. So when we're talking, we'll just talk care under fire and direct threat, and leave the warm zone kookiness out of it yeah. because I think it for, that just complicates crap. Yeah, just definitely stay at that point of injury in that dynamic environment, and then work back to where you get that kind of stability and you know things under control again, and kind of go back to your normal SOPs of how you do stuff. Right, and so before we start talking, and Ryan starts kind of going into a little bit of it from the Kazavac um, side, uh, and that we're talking about the soft Kazavac program that that has everything from airbags, hearse tools, um, halligans, and, and rope and rescue stuff, along with a, a whole layered aid bags to getting into literally like say ventilators and 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 O2 ultrasounds and O2 generators, generators and stuff so it's a it's a very large program that's out there uh but we run into the same thing on on the civilian side but realizing that whenever you're doing this having something modular is really kind of the way to go that taking huge bags and saying hey one size fits all really isn't for anything uh that we run into having something modular that's just a quick reaction bag something a little bit sturdier when you're dealing with your evacuation and things like this is is kind of the way you want to go but keep in mind and i'll let ryan talk a little bit about even aid bag packing and stuff like this that used to do for you because you guys had like literally you had bags like women have shoes like for missions I've seen Sean we really had a lot of bags you did it was incredible like yeah. I would go in and just be like are you kidding me and you're like oh yeah this is kind of for this one and if we had something like this, this I mean everybody across the board with the medics there I'm like holy crap that's that is amazing uh, but they're so special but there was a reason behind the madness on there and you always have to assume risk because you can't predict everything in that environment um, and so realize that you're never going to be 100% sure on what you're doing but based on you know your experience and knowledge you, you assume risk and pack these bags so yeah i'll let you hit off on some of that stuff as far as the you know aid bag or thoughts on a layered or um med capability versus oh this is my aid bag you kind of have more of a, a medical loadout let's say that yeah. that you have tiered off and you even have secondary bags and things like that so hit it. i mean it's kind of going for like the medical layers and the planning you know you basically start off with what you put in every guy's ifac right so, you know, everybody's got typically some sort of bandage, you know, one, two tourniquets, chest seals, uh, needle decompression needles. So it's like, do you have to really care a lot, a lot of that stuff on you or in your backup bag? You know, because you kind of take all the guys you have and look at that equipment. You've got a lot of stuff there to kind of march all those patients if something bad happens. So, you know, that's the first place we look is what are we packing with on those guys to do that assessment? And then from there, you kind of go like what you have as the individual medic on your body. And, you know, for us, like, that was always completely customized. So every medic, like, I mean, you saw it, like, no aid bag is the same. Like, you can, they will argue all day about, like, which is the best aid bag, how to load it out. Like, does my belt have this? Does it have that? And, 
you know, we're always trying new things. But and you guys work out. You you worked off a March Bubble lot and then had an aid bag for kind of the big guns. Things. Yeah. Like okay. The, if I have to go in my aid bag like that, shit got real. Doc needs some time because it, it's not going well. Right. But you know, like most of the times, I just it's just my March Belt, and that was pretty a plus up belt. You know, I had you know a couple extra artifacts in there. I had uh, drugs for conscious sedation in case you had to emergency airway, and kind of that was like the what you really have to provide fast. You got to be able to stop bleeding. And if there's some sort of facial injury or inhalation or something like that, you've got to be able to put an airway in real quick. That's kind of your, you know, that's your, I guess you're like a CQB drills and medic is those couple things, bleeding yeah. and airway control. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's what's in my March belt. And then, you know, also had like my quick looks, the, you know, the pulse oxes, the Emma and Tidal, just to make sure things are going the way you want to start some of that trending. And then the, you know, basically the aid bag was kind of like your recess, like your big guns. That's where you're going to have like your threshold blood now. They're starting to carry blood forward. And then you're going to have like, you know, your FDP or whatever else you're using for your TXA, recess. Actually, yeah. TXA, all those type of things. Antibiotics, kind of like your secondary care that you can put or use in your tactical field care setting. And so that's kind of on your person. You're just moving back out. And then what we started to do is we used to have everyone had their own kind of backup bag. It was those big black and terrace bags. Yeah. And which makes sense. Like, I, you know, I know what I have. I know it's in my bag. So if I need it and I call it, yeah, I'm, I know what I'm getting. It's, so then your kind of loadout is complete. But what we learned is on some bigger buildings when things didn't quite go right, now we have three black and terrorist bags. And so, you know, if like medics number one, one is like, hey, I need my black bag, and then, you know, your 18 Bravo is like, here's the black bag, and it shows up, and all of a sudden you're like, ha-ha, that really sucks. There's, this is somebody else's bag. Right. I've got no fast ones. Now I'm a douche. Right. <laughs> so right. It, we don't want to be a douche. No one wants that. No. Just and don't so, suck at what you do. Yeah. And so with that, that's where we stand did like a standardized packing list on our backup bags. So if any medic on the ground, on target, calls for his backup, he knows what's in there. So now you got kind of planning from both ends. I'm planning from the point of injury all the way back to my follow-on bag so I kind of know what I'm getting when I'm working. That's kind of how we ended up. And I know you guys had like the uh, autonomy to, to build out your kits however the hell you wanted to, um, but you specialized and did the same thing for your backups. But what kind of, what kind of guidelines did you go off of for, hey, like, my march belt I want to be able to take care of let's say eight extremity wounds four pocket wounds X airways did you have that like hey I want to, I want these capabilities did you base it off capabilities or I mean I think what what I always base it off of is to be able to take care of two multi-system trauma patients okay. and be able to run a march on them um, and then kind of depending on what we're doing and where assets were I would put some extra stuff in you know my bag like a junctional device mm-hmm. you know, if, I, if I had an aircraft there that was really quick to get them on a medevac Okay. Um, that was definitely a consideration. So it changed slightly, but basically I was always trying to make sure with the equipment that all my guys had in their IFACs and what I had on my body, I could start working up to multi-system trauma patients. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. And then your bag would assist further on down that line, and then you always had your backup bag. Yeah, you take multiple and, then and your backup bag's them. there. And I mean, you also have to consider that if, if you have more than that, you've got a couple other medics on targets, so now they can come over and bump once you start getting to that CCP. Yeah. Because uh, if it's that chaotic, you're not working too much. You're just kind of moving back to CCP. All right. All right, so that that out of the way, uh, talking about that, same thing kind of goes from the rescue side is usually, you know, when we talk to people, whether it's uh, in SOCOM or it's, it's um, a SWAT team or it's it's a team moving in potentially for an integrated rescue task force is if, if that building does have a second, third, fourth story, right, have some sort of capability to be able to vertically get those casualties out instead of the time wasted packaging them, taking stairs, going out the 
entrance that you know the first officers made it into and and the time delays on that is just huge and so you know if we if we typically just calculate your your regular commercial stories at 10 to 12 feet um, now granted in some hotels and things like that that first story can be much higher and stuff like that but there's ways to calculate that out we typically have people just think all right you know if i carry a minimum of some sort of 50 feet of a smaller millimeter cord right whatever descent device that I feel really comfortable that I can get enough friction on that to lower a casualty, lower myself. Uh, so that may just be a munter, that might be a micro, uh, like Rock Exotic is a little micro aid or something like that. But just having that, some webbing or an ERS or, or something to package into uh, to be able to get people out a window that you break out in that CCP and just start dropping people down, you know, and control descents real quick. And it's something that firefighters do all the time for rapid intervention crew stuff. You know, so having a couple extra, couple extra carabiners, lightweight things, but when you're looking at it, it's still really damn light, man. If we use, like, we've been using that 6.8 writ uh, line, which literally hardly weighs crap, and we can get as much friction as we want with that Rock Exotica Micro 8, to be able to start throwing casualties out really quickly, very safely uh, with an ERS. When you look at the weight and cube size of that, that's it's really nothing, man. No, I mean, it, it's hardly anything. Um, so I think one thing about this too is like we're just talking about lowering casualty, right? Like, you know, it might not be the climbing team that's on the second, third story. Like, right. have you ever been in a building ended up on the third floor and you think you're going to end up there? Like, right. It happens. So I think you also have to have the capability for self rescue. Yeah, absolutely. And, like bailouts are key. Like we we always talk about, like, hey, I don't get the casualty out, but. You know, if you get one of those bug out calls and you got to get out now, like, and you know the yeah. bug out side, you know, the I know. climbing team's out the windows. And you're like, wow, this sucks to be me, right? And then, like, what the hell am I doing? The right? Music stopped, and I got no share. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is this sucks ass. You guys are assholes, right? Exactly. And I think you know, being able to to maneuver with somebody that has a rope, being able to set up an evac site, but just like your your bug out call comes out or whatever you know for you guys obviously you know we train on that quite a bit but it's same thing is just as relevant on the civilian side for when that ied is found you know we look at certain cases where it was hours after that they found the id yeah. and and ryan you worked on the san bernardino aar with us too and did a bunch of the interviews out there with us yeah. they're, um, they're tromping around the building they got bombs they didn't know about they got right IDs. and you know as things move forward i mean that's that is something that we've got to be really aware of and, and you know if you get up on that third floor and there's a there's a bag with some wires on it, and you know you probably don't want to keep walking everybody out that way, or we start moving your casualties past it because that's the only egress you have. That's pretty retarded. Uh, to where if you can get in a room, close that door, get or whatever, and just start getting people down really quick, including yourself, and get your team out. And the equipment, the skills to be able to set up and do that in a rapid environment, it's not much at all. It's yeah. pretty easy. Like, and I think that's that's one of the issues is we fight that all the time. And and I know that you had some firsthand experience with this too, but. When you go into rescue, you know, we were talking about the other day is, is your, I guess your, your knowledge, your, your curriculum that, that we teach and stuff has its own personality. Yeah. And we joke that, you know, our curriculum probably is like really ADHD and smart ass, but, um, but it has to be simple, effective and safe. But a lot of the rescue stuff that you see, whether it's in the military or stuff converted over into SWAT teams and tactical teams and maybe even RTFs gets so complicated where it never has to be. Like, it's amazing to me to have guys that have come in and gone to all these schools and had all these guys that, you know, well-respected companies and stuff that come in and literally on that first day at lunch, they're like, holy crap, dude, we never knew this. This is so much easier. And it just freaking amazes me. You know, maybe it's because of our requirements when we teach it, you know, where you came from and stuff like that is it's like, 
it's got to be lightweight, fast, and you got to, like, I don't have time to train on a bunch because I'm training on 15 other things. Yep. So when I need this, I need to remember it easily, not screwed up, and it's got to be safe, and I got it's got to work really effectively. The funny thing to me, like, I was looking at that last class in California, it was yeah. like, oh, this is amazing. But then they're like, hey, are we going to do a backup line on this to train and go down? <laughs> and it's like, you know, the first time you bail out on a single anchor, that might be a little bit sketch. Like, you should probably do it in training and work and get comfortable with it. But, you know, they still have the mentality where they're like, oh, we'll top rope you and get a second line. And like, Yeah, and, and a lot of times it does. It creates bad, like, training scar tissue yeah. on it because if you've got this blade line that's always going around, you, I mean, you have to get to a point where you, you say as a group, I trust this equipment. So maybe this group trusts a nine millimeter bailout, yeah. but you know we work with people that are trusting like five and six mils all day long because they understand the system, right? I understand how to load my anchor. I understand how to actually get myself out of that window without shock loading anything and do it very, very quickly, very, very light. Um, so it comes down to that, you, you know, the the preference of the user. But it's it's always amazing to me once they're like, oh man, we're you know we're doing these this 150 foot thing off this tower using doing releasable anchors with no backup on a 7.5 with just a macrame with just a macrame yeah. as our releasable yeah. and, and then you get that like, and, oh crap look in the face like, right okay and, let's go check this a couple times and what's funny is then you sit down and talk about okay let's look at the safety factor of what you're dealing with and then all of a sudden they're like oh my gosh like we just innately overkill safety so much to where we add complexity to our rope systems to where they actually become unsafe yeah. because there's more moving parts that you have to you have to understand and work to where if you just understood the simple principles and how to make it very very safe with a safety factor you're really comfortable with, yeah. it becomes super easy and we hear that all the time like holy crap man like it's a three day course and they walk out being able to do rock load stars train. all rock stars man yeah. like there's really they're doing they're doing tension rope systems they're doing load, load transfers on day one they're yeah. doing rope you know load transfers like not passes and pickoffs on day one after they've already done their mechanical advantages lowers bailouts and and you know different you know soft starts hard starts to repelling and I think just by cutting that fat out, that's that's the thing. You know, it's that's the motivator for for learning that. You know, and I guess now if they look at their kit, at the end of it is like, I could actually carry this. This is not a lot of BS. Yeah, like, I've got an. Ex- I could do this. Yeah, you know, and even an extensive rope kit. Like, you want something like the ABS, right? Yeah. So when you look at that, that that's under eight pounds, and we literally can do anything with that. I mean, we do our, all of our rope, not, not passes, load transfers, high, raises, lowers. Uh, we can do uh, a two-to-one, three-to-one. Uh, normally, we just stick with a three-to-one and five-to-one, but you can go up and raise it up to a six-to-one if you want. And it's, it is so much crap packed into a small kit that and the safety factor. I mean, how many years have we been using that equipment? You know, we've reconfigured it here and there, but it's morphed a little bit. I mean, it's been it's, like eight years now. Yeah, easy, you know, and uh, and so, you know, we bring out dynamiters and the enforcers and stuff, and so all of a sudden when people see what you're really waiting on that anchor, what you're really waiting on when you are when you put an edge into it and things like this, and then all of a sudden the lights go off and they're like, oh, my God, like they think about all their old rescue courses and they feel like they've been wronged. They, yeah. Like they, I've been lied to. They give to. you that look, Sean. They say, Sean, I could bring the ruckus. <laughs> That's could, where they're at. They want to call it, yeah, like, you know what this is? This is the bear. <laughs> it's it's going to get up in your honey. It's going to claw your face off. Claw your face off, That's man. exactly right, man. The, the bear. bear. It is the bear. A three-day bear course. <laughs> Three. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, there's one other thing, man, like freaking out hasn't kicked in uh, that I was thinking when you're but talking. Cuban but Cuban coffee has. But I think I, are shaking. I know, dude. This, like, is, this is, I know. I, I did. I pounded that. That was pretty good. I'm definitely not sleeping tonight. We got Mark Shen from Triple Nine over here in the corner. Did you, you, David didn't bring you coffee, right? 
Sure did. Did he really? But did you drink it? Yes, I did. Okay, so Mark is, I don't want to say like a 90-year-old woman with caffeine because when you get to the South, like your 90-year-old women like drink straight bourbon and stuff, you know what I'm saying? So they're still badass and Mark's not there. bourbon or is it like mint juleps? No, some of them drink too. They'll drink some straight freaking moonshine, man. So like you got to give Southern women like the freaking thing. Mark, though, is Mark's... Mark's is it Asian or Oriental? What do you say now? What's right? Yeah, it's Asian, right? If you don't, if you don't know, you say other. Other. He's yeah. other. Yeah. Um, so he's other, and so Mark was uh, Mark from Triple Nine, right? Was uh, we were on a SWAT team together. Mark was also a former Marine at one time. He never made his way jumping over to SF, but we were on the same SWAT team. And um, I'll just throw one thing in here as we break up the mountain of us talking rescue and medical. So we're on this call out, and Mark was a sniper. I was on the the contact team and so there was a guy who shot two people uh on some like drug deal gone bad or whatever and no one knew the circumstances so 911 gets called for these people these two guys that were down the street literally not even an entire block yet that collapsed on a sidewalk fd picks them up and they're like oh what's going on and they were shot and they're like holy shit so they loaded them up in the thing took off called the activated pd or whatever um, there's always that pause between like patrol getting there and getting true containment if they get true containment or whatever, and then calling SWAT. So they did not get true containment, as it turns out. In hindsight, doesn't exist. doesn't really exist. And so, uh, so we get called out there, and it was in the afternoon, and uh, it's a hot summer, like Florida crap ass right just nasty and so uh, as things progress, they're trying to make contact. Snipers are out there. Mark was on a on a on one of the teams there for the sniper side and uh it turned into night uh once the negotiators right get involved it's like a snickers it's like a snickers commercial right you can be here for a while have a snickers and uh so what we decided is we were off to the side and we already like laid the there there was a couple vehicles that were in the driveway or whatever and so we laid out the spike strips and stuff behind them and got everything squared away now we're just sitting and waiting and now it turns it's like one o'clock in the morning two o'clock in the morning and so we're what sitting against a fence and i know shen knows this right so yeah feet up so we took we took okay god damn man so we did a little work rest cycle type of thing and so half of us would just like kind of you know nod off it was half it was half that's all I saw was. Yeah, it was half. So half of us would, would nod off while the other ones are, you know, there, alert and ready to go. And then we'd switch, right? And um, because you want to be like a coiled spring, right? Like a crouching tiger, right? Or a cobra. Or a cobra. A freaking, a cobra is more like a coiled spring. Yeah, like a, more like a limp slinky. Like a two-headed cobra is what we were trying to be. Nice. And so finally, as it turns out, after they've seen the guy moving past the window a lot, yeah, it wasn't. It was an oscillating freaking fan with the TV on inside. The dude was never in there the entire freaking time. So finally we went in there, cleared the whole thing, sent dogs up in the attic or whatever. And, uh, and so Shen comes over, our, our Asian friend, and, uh, and looks over. And he's like, I looked over, and I saw you guys sleeping. And I thought to myself, you undisciplined round eyes. I never laughed my ass off so, so much. Oh my god, that's uh, so that's our that's our Shendo story, man. 
Oh, God, that was funny. <laughs> oh, God. And I'm like, maybe it's a hard time for you seeing what a person is in an oscillating fan. But that was his partner. I'll give you that. That was the other dude who will remain nameless on this yes. on this one. So now when we put it, this whole thing together, uh, going pure straight voltage, ADHD, let's get back into the four components that we kind of frame this off of. So we have access. We have assess and stabilize as one extract and evacuation so i'll kind of give this a brief thing and you kind of talk about how you see everything fitting in between care and fire between your loadout and how that kind of relates to this soft kazavac and then i'll kind of come in and talk about how it relates to the tecc side of it is access we just have issues right and we talked about that before so whether it's cutting into a downed helo or it's it's breaching into a, a house or it's it's you know in the case access, for, yeah it's vertical access so you know on a mountain rescue team you know somebody just fell off the side of this you may have to go above you can't hike in from there so you may have to attack from above there be able to set up an anchor that can be changed into a hull system so your access is Repelling down past you know that waterfall or that terrain uh, to be able to make access to that casualty. Um, or I know this would never happen, but like a soft team out someplace and they roll a vehicle, <laughs> like that would never happen because they're goddamn green berets. Right, it's mobility. But someone yeah. just like rolls it because they don't know how to drive with the nods and they blame it on a support guy. That may happen. Who knows? That'll never happen. Who, who knows? So you have the access problem. Then I, I think the big part for everybody to realize is like the assess and stabilizes. That can be really overdone it can be underdone but i think finding the happy medium is that's where the environmental pathology really comes into play too so i assess for anything that's life-threatening and this isn't a case where you're going to have an enormous med loadout with you you're going in to access and see what the hell you even have whether that's in an active shooter or that's in, in something in a hostage rescue or whatever that is um you're going to go in probably lighter weight right so on that spectrum you're at the lighter side but you're fast quick and you don't know what you're needing so i get in uh and i access it whether that's you know halligan this and that whatever now assess and stabilize has a spectrum to it and that assessment i want to do a quick good assessment like white light assessment right so i'm not missing crap in that thing but my stabilized portion there's a spectrum so if there's a tornado that literally just hit some middle school and we're rushing in there real quick to do some hasty rescues my stabilization is probably going to be enough that i stabilize them enough that hopefully they don't die on the way out right and we can't always help them with every injury that they have i mean i may have some sort of solid you know bleeding and you know something in the box whatever that i can't really do much for but my stabilization should be limited to trying to get them the hell out because I'm worried about secondary collapse. I'm worried about other tornadoes. I've got all these other threats out there. That's a big thing, too, is that, you know, it might not just be that patient you need to get out. It might be that rescuer that's at risk, too. So, yep. like, you don't want to complicate that problem. And, you know, now you're down this cliff and who knows, QRF is coming. Sure. And, like, now I start shooting. I got two guys shot down there. Right. And it's like, so it's just like, every, it's like the rescuer and the patient. Like, and, you got to get them out. And the other side is, especially with your organization, um, but you see this across the board, too, with special operations teams in the civilian side. Is the the medicine that they're able to perform in a pre-hospital environment is fairly substantial, especially with your yeah. 18 Delta uh, advanced tactical practitioner or ATP. I mean, you guys can do some insane stuff, Medics man. And, and soft in general. I mean, the Rangers, the, the Sarks, and you know, 
they've got some skills. Dude, they do. They have some huge capabilities. And the problem with that is when when is the right time to employ that, right? And I think that there was a good article from the civilian side for USAR that was written a while ago is, is do we bring the ER to our patient or do we bring the patient to the ER? And in the conclusion, it's really kind of a halfway thing. It's doing the right thing at the right time, right, which is the TC3. Yeah, with the right, right thing at the wrong time, it's bad it's, juju. It is bad juju. And in rescue, it, it's the same thing, right? And so people need to realize and, and test this for yourself. Don't take our word, but we've got, you know, over a decade of, of trying like the most insane crap on full mission profile type trainings, the more medical you do in a tight spot, like whether it's a confined space or it's a structural collapse or it's even any high angle in that environment, it the takes harder an, your rescue. Becomes. Oh God, it's an exponential time for evacuation. So your extraction and evacuation becomes exponentially long because now I'm having to manage the treatment modalities that. Maybe they needed, but most likely could have waited until I got them off that cliff or I got them out of that structural collapse or out of that confined space. It, I mean, trying to manage a chest tube, trying to manage an advanced day where trying to manage those things, that is not easy when you're trying to take 90-degree curves while you're crawling on your stomach and dragging them. And, and that's real world in training. Like, if you start plugging stuff in, guess what? You just buy yourself more time with Dave. Yeah, like, yeah. Shoot my shit on, like, narcs. Right, right, like, right. I right. don't want Dave bugging me for another hour. I could just be like, hey, I just need to get him out of here. Is that Callaway? Safe. We're referring to yeah. Callaway. So a little yeah. toss out to Dave Callaway on yeah. that one. Yeah, and that's exactly I don't it. want Dave on me. No, no. Who does, man? No one. Right? Scary. He's like a little like a liberal tiger. And uh, <laughs> the, the, you have to... You have to pet his tummy to calm him down a little bit, you right? You have to pay the man if you start doing intervention. <laughs> you do have to pay the man. <laughs> you do have to pay the man. Uh, but yeah, he'll get on you, right? And that's it. And that's the point. Is like when you put the quarter in. Now you're thing. you're playing the game. You're like playing the game. Is. And that's what that's what sucks. And if we don't do that effectively in our training, we won't see what an ass wound that is. But hopefully, that stabilization will be just enough that they won't die on my way to evacuate them out. But at the same time, we may be in a situation where it's not that. We may be able to get that pilot out a certain way. We have a good security element, cordon. We don't really have any other threats. Now we're just waiting on a bird or we're waiting on something. So my stabilization may be much more elaborate at that point, right? But so it's a spectrum based on what that threat of the environment is. Then we have our extract, which is getting them moved out to a place where we can start figuring out what, what's going on, getting them out of that higher threat area. And then we move into that evacuation, which we've kind of say is the rescue and medical portion up to a handoff. Yep. So what people need to realize is not only can I get more a little bit more elaborate with my rescue capability, but I can also get more elaborate with my medical yep. at that point. I right? mean, like anytime you say evacuation, it's moving that patient to a higher level level or capability of care. Yeah. So you've less... Even like, if it's still just you. If, if it's still right. just you, but now you're going back to like your primary bags, your primary stuff, and then you end up in that... You know, T uh, C, TC three. Oh, yeah, that coffee's really good. It is. I'm like spinning. <laughs> it was a solid move, man. Mix yeah. that with an Adderall. Yeah, that's, that's basically when you go to your tactical field care and you're out of that care under fire because both you and that patient are safe in the hazardous environment. Right. So yeah. So if you want to hit on just some of those things like you, you've seen, because I know the last Kazavak was, dude, that was kind of, that got silly, and part of it was because it was written during the heavy days of your presence in Iraq, and it didn't come out until until that those were winding down and all of a sudden you guys were moving as like te- small teams different places and all of a sudden you had these huge huge kits that weren't modularized whatsoever they didn't meet those things and they were made for like the big green machine being yeah. in Iraq the big footprint with all these assets and CSAR and all this other stuff and when the when that kind of came out the Kazvac program came out that was that was not where you were anymore. That was not where our special operations were. Yeah. So it turned out to be kind of screwy. So if you want to hit on that a little bit, because you were at SOFIC and had some good meetings. So. Well, we'll just kind of talk like 
looking at that kit, we'll just to kind of talk about that the access portion. Like, I'm not going to go into the transport, like the medical care, yeah, the monitors, yeah. like all that type of stuff. But just from an access portion, like right now, like you know, teams are all over the world, and like you're driving around in like un, you know Hilux trucks or Land Cruisers, and you know you just don't have space to be carrying specialized equipment or the weight. You know, like the weight's a real big issue. And yeah, yeah, because a lot of the armor and stuff like that. It's it, like those it, things are maxed out. Like, right, you can't put without having out. any without having a dude in it. Yep, and then, they're almost maxed out. And then you're weight. sitting there like, hey, I don't have a PJ, I don't have any rescue, so you start trying to throw stuff, and instantly it's like, Doc, well, guess what? You don't get a sleeping bag. You want to bring this bullshit. Right. Do you know how to use it? Uh, not really. I think we just, like, cut something, or I don't know. So it's like there's not this, there's not skills there to use it, and there's no space for it anyway because everything is so specialized. Yeah. I think that's kind of like where we started working a while ago trying to figure out, like, hey, how can we solve these access problems with just the stuff that you actually are going to have? Right, yeah, that's that's a funny that's one. Like a, a yeah. big thing is, like, what, what are we actually going to have and how do we fix the problem? Right, and so because of the weight, because of the smaller organic assets, the smaller amount of people, so smaller teams moving across areas with less no, support. Less support, and that's what I was going to say. You don't have no anybody. You, like you, you're alone. Yep, you don't have anybody you can call. You know, there's not, like, a call a friend type of thing to bring in a CSAR team in any time real soon and stuff. So we started looking at... Um, what's already being carried in those vehicles and can we find a new way which is technically the definition of disruption right it's taking something that's already there using it and combining with other stuff to create a new capability that hasn't been there before so it's not like this revolution we're going to make a new tool that can do 15 different things it's taking stuff that people already know combining it with something else that's already there and then having a, a capability. So I think probably a good example of that is like the, the first responder high lift jack. That's amazing. Yeah, so we, we looked at that. So a lot of your mobility stuff and things on the razor. You just got to watch the handle. You, you got to watch that, especially It'll tune spe- you up. especially that 60, <laughs> 60 inch one, man. That, that, yeah, You've that. seen some guys take one to the face. And a couple times. It's like, it happens. Yeah, so if you're lowering something on yeah. that after you lift something really heavy up, make sure that your face is in front of the bar. But yeah, it was amazing because we took a look at it. We're like, you know what? We can we can probably expand on the capability since it's already on the vehicle, yep. right? Let's take a look at it. And so we did switch from the regular one to the the first responder one, like the one that's on the on TMS's website that has it has enhanced capabilities. Like yep. that's what really allows us to do it. But all of a sudden, we were working with some of your your breaching folk and things like this, and they just had the new Hamacho. That was made for them, yep. you know the new battery, battery and this and that. I mean, it, was, it was money, right? And, and so we were like, "Hey, listen, let's let's put the similar damage to the vehicles." And we had unlimited vehicles, man. This yeah. we were able to play around with this for like three days. Is let's give similar damage to the vehicles, and let's have a two or four man team work the problem over there with the Helmatro and stuff, and let's just have a two man team work the high lift. And we weren't working on armored vehicles, just to specify that, but armored vehicles in many cases are much easier to breach into than, than the, the traditional ones like the Hiluxes that aren't armored and stuff like that. But So we went side by side, and we just want to see how much more time it took for the high lift compared to the specialized tool. And that would tell us, you know, when we look at primary, alternate, contingency, emergency, where where the footprint of the knowing the Hamacho would be the primary um, where the footprint would, would it be would it be an alternate or would it be more of a contingency and all of a sudden we did like nine different scenarios and we never lost to a specialized tool no nope. I mean it was faster easier easier because every, everybody already knows how to use it yep. every freaking time so whether we were peeling a door off with the high lift or we were 
doing a pedal impingement on the legs or we were lifting a dashboard up or TPing the back window up to do these rapid uh, vehicle uh, extrications, it won. It was better every time. And we did it multiple times. Okay, that's a fluke. Yeah. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. And now let's take somebody that's not as familiar with the high lift as we are. Let's and do it. And it also was more uh, forgiven with the act, like your back oh, yeah. points on it. Like oh, yeah. The specialized tools, you have to know where you're going in at it or else you just create a mess for yourself. It, it did. And so it kind of blew our mind. So all of a sudden that high lift really became the primary, became yeah. the P. We're like, holy crap. And everybody's got it. Yep. And it's they already know how to use it, and so now all of a sudden we aren't adding more weight to that vehicle, you know that, that's responding in there. Like we're good to go, and and then we're using it on the collapse. Yep. Right, and uh, I mean, thing, oh my, ten thousand pound slabs. Oh yeah, ten and fifteen thousand pounds. I mean, yeah. getting patients out of them. It was ridiculous. And it then took one, them longer to hook up the airbags. Yeah, it, it, we already had like casualties coming like out. The backpack, like how does this fit together again? Right, and, and so they're done with the high lift. Yeah, whether it was low or. Uh, High pressure bags, man. It, we were getting people out by the time, but the principles stayed the same, yep. right? Like you lift a lift an inch, crib an inch, right? But now we're using just organic properties of the building that collapsed. So we're using the two by fours, and we're using the four by fours. We're using concrete stuff so to create our fulcrum, like yeah, to create cribbing, yeah. to create the fulcrums, to create all that stuff. And it was so damn fast. Yeah. And those high lifts were incredible because, yeah, a high lift jack is not rated to to lift fifteen thousand pound, you know, uh, reinforced concrete but you're never lifting that much you cribbing the other four sides you're only lifting one quarter at one time you know yeah. when we're putting it on the edges and trying to make access and it, it becomes that game uh but yeah all of a sudden with like one tool you got rid of possibly your power tools and oh yeah you know like a specialized the halter like you're doing the same stuff you would be yeah we did you know and if you remember like we did the same thing uh because we started using it on some other vehicles that you guys were using but it started on the rg33 on the MRAPs is uh, the only tool that could be used back then was the Powerhawk. Yeah. It was that 50-pound battery power thing, two people to even transport that thing over to the door, but it was the only thing that could get into an MRAP. And but its name's badass. It is. I'm the Powerhawk. Powerhawk. You know what I'm yeah. saying? That's like, like who's carrying the Powerhawk? And you realize it's not like a weapon system. You're yeah, like, oh, and you realize, okay, it's a heavy-ass piece of crap. Yeah, and, uh, but it was heavy as shit. And then, you know, it's not like the MRAPs are close to the ground, so you're lifting this stuff up, you know, high to even be able to get that breach on that door. Um, and we were screwing around looking for a way that we could get a different tool. Like, I think at that time we were looking at the hand-powered Homatro or the, the uh, pump Hurst yeah. that you guys had, remember? And so we're like, hey, let's try and take this PRT, which is just a manual tool. It's the... the is the Hurst thing called like a rabbit? Yeah. Is that what it is? No, 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 no. There's the rabbit tool is the other one. The Hurst one was, I can't remember what it was. There's a couple models of it, but... It was, it was, I think yeah, there's still one laying around the yeah. building, but um, we just wanted to be able to, to try, and make, try and force it to where we could at least get the tips of that hand-pumped um, spreader underneath there, and all of a sudden, just with a hand tool, the PRT, um, we breached it. Yeah. And we're like, wait a second, that was wrong. Okay, put the combat locks back on. We're like, do 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 Again, we're like, oh my God. Awesome. Then, then we started doing it, and yeah, I think that's when, that's when Jay was there. And he got us access with the PJ, so all the different configurations of them. Yep. And every single one we were able to get into, and we're like, oh, my God. Like, we're doing this with a hand tool. Knock, knock, open up the door. <laughs> so, the nonstop <laughs> pop in stainless steel. That's it, man. Everything kind of goes back to, to DMX. Yep. But he's also a local guy, man. He's in Greer. He's, you know, 20 minutes down the road. He's in jail, I think, right now, again, but some sort of fraud well, or evasion. He, he needs to be, man. He's, yeah, he's uh, great, but he's still gangster. Yeah. Keeping it real. He is keeping it real. Like I love that guy. Poor little out. The rabbit. There's there's Mark. That's the rabbit. 
No, it's a camera. Mark just shows us pictures of cameras. People love cameras. <laughs> That's why I bring whiskey here. Yeah. Completely throws him off. Okay, so now he throws up the drunk Irish stuff on us. Okay. You see how that goes? He just uh, rolls it up and make one comment about... A little about, bit earlier, you're talking about just getting the tip in. Right? And that's all we're talking about. I held back on laughing on that. Like, all you really have to do is just get the tip in. <laughs> Everything you ever learned about rescue, I learned, I learned in high school. Once, so, you, get the, once yeah. you get the tip, you're good. That's it, man. <laughs> all right, so going to the access. So right. th- th- hopefully they, they understand, like, we don't have to have all these specialized tools. You yeah. don't need that don't need at all. Like, you need to find what you have. So we were even doing the thing from the civilian side where we were able to breach most of the padlocks outside of the boron ones. But your typical master ones that are tough under fire that have the little sticker on and stuff, uh, we were able to use, like, even ASPs. And, uh, and then, obviously, in one class that we did up there, we ended up having a real-world rescue we had to do after, after you. But somebody... Got injured on a waterfall one time. He will remain nameless. Remain nameless, but don't go chasing waterfalls. waterfalls. And we ended up having to do a quick evac. No cell service, no nothing up in the mountains in Western Carolina. And when we got to, the, we got them loaded up. They brought the truck in, pickup truck, got the everything going. A couple medics in there. Dude hops in the back, and on our way out, one of those big. Um, national force, force gates, freaking yeah. gates were already shut and padlocked and it had the big you know the big ass gold padlock that's on it that's the the numbers and all this other stuff and one of the one of the dudes uh hopped out because we did it the week before we didn't doing all the breaching grabbed a tire iron and literally just made that padlock explode so you know with a tire iron which is exists in every cop car like we can go through and destroy what Cho put on as yeah. far as that the equivalent there, but even more so, even bigger padlocks. The only ones we can't really nail with that effectively, it depends on the tire iron too, or with an asp, is is like the boron ones. But we don't really see eighty dollar padlocks at a school. Yep. You know, uh, what we see are those masters and it'll destroy those. So, you know, in it, yeah, it would be cool to have a halogen because you could have some other capabilities on doors and stuff. Yep. But when it comes to like chains, I'm worried about chains and padlocks, and it's not just to get in. I may want to get out a different way that's safer, yep. right? Because the threat's dynamic. So if I'm still worried or some area hasn't been cleared yet, I may want to find a different way to get out than the way we came in. Uh, so it's still very relevant to, to do that. So access is not just really an access problem. It's an ingress and egress. Yep. So it's access for your evac route yep. or access to make an ingress into your patients. Definitely. All right. All right. Hit the assess and stabilize on anything that I screwed up on that. Um, so assess and stabilize, that's basically like once you've got access, once you're down there, and this now kind of jumps back to the access to kits and stuff that you bring with you. Yeah. Um, this is one of those things like I, I don't know why no one's ever thought about it or we haven't thought about doing it that way, but why don't our access kits have you know, enough medical gear inside of it to assess and stabilize the patient? Like every time I'd had like my rope kit or my rescue kit, it was a separate bag. It's right. like, okay, here's the rope rescue bag. Here's my aid bag. And it's like then you have to go down some hillside and you're like the clampets with bags hanging all off of you. <laughs> and it's just like you look really stupid and like well, your life sucks. Yeah. 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 So it's like why don't we just put like a little bit of equipment in there so I can, you know, take his IFAC, bolster him up a little bit, and then get him out of there. And it's also that... So keep your eye on TACMED's IG account for some kids coming out here relatively soon. Yeah, but... Uh, and the other thing is like you're going into a hazardous environment. So like why do you want to bring all of your medical gear down there if it's going to go bad, you're risking that medical gear on top of yourself. And so now it's like, if that stuff disappears... It's not like if you have all that stuff and your car blows up or something. Yeah, it's like if That's, you have all this happen, stuff, like all your medical gear and like two vehicles, and those two vehicles happen to like just hypothetically explode, and now you're like, God damn, I'm kind of fucked. This is terrible. This is terrible. Like, <laughs> I've got like a tourniquet and a 
14-gauge needle. <laughs> Hopefully our injuries okay. will be consistent with that. A half pack of cigarettes, sunglasses on. <laughs> they become Full the tank r- of gas. <laughs> a mission from God. Yeah. Mission from God. Yeah, so it's like starting to think about like your kits. Like when you have an access kit, like, you know, if, if you're in Afghanistan, you're, you know, doing some patrols on, you know, hillsides, like, what do I want in that kit in case a vehicle rolls down there and I got to stabilize those guys? Yeah. And like, you know, you might not, you might have the bags on that truck, but they might be underneath it. You know, it's like, so you have to kind of think about stuff a little bit too. Like you might lose that gear that you thought you had. So it's probably a good idea to have a little bit cross-loaded yeah. into those access kits. Yeah. Um, solid. So that brings you to assess and stabilize. And we were kind of talking about it before, but you know, everything that you do to that patient until you get him back up into safety, into flat ground or, you know, wherever that more stable environment is, you're just going to complicate the movement of him that much more. You know, are you going to put an airway in and then, like, have dirt funneling down? You know, it's like... That is screwed up. And I think, you know, Jay, uh, I guess we can talk about Jay now that he's, like, through med school now. But came out of of your organization, man. Awesome dude. But he... uh, he was great because he would lead those scenarios that we'd do at night, man, into, like, all these guys that are now learned just these crazy capabilities to where immediately people would be like, hey, and this is on station one of this gauntlet, right, where it starts under NVG, but he would make it so it seemed like you really wanted to put in a, uh, an advanced airway and you really needed to cut this guy's screw up. And once you did, you were literally screwed for, like, the next four hours, yep. right? When in reality, by just positional, putting that guy... On his side, on the foxtrot, kicking his leg over, securing him on the foxtrot on that, you had his airway fine at that point, yeah. right? Unless you're, like, looking, it's like he's burned up in his face or it's going to be swelling. You're like, okay, I'm probably going to get into a hard spot. But right. if not, he'll kind of let you know when you need to put an airway in as long as you're monitoring him. Yeah. And so, I mean, just a positional airway in a lot of these cases, yeah. we can do something and at least get them out of there to where it's good enough to where we're in an environment where we can actually place that and have more assets to yeah. be able to maintain whatever... Advanced shit you did. I think the big thing is just you're stabilizing, stabilizing him enough to get him back to your number one, moving him back out of there, and then two, to where you do that transition over to your tactical field care environment where you can actually get out your primary aid bags and primary gear in your trucks or, you know, whatever it is to get back to that normal, like, there's no more rescue problem or access problem. And I think for the civilian side, uh, even if we look at it from the San Bernardino side, right, they were very aggressive, did some unbelievable stuff that we hadn't seen before, and, you know, a lot of people probably read that. They rocked the mic. They rocked the mic, but, you know, what they did is they did that quick assess, stabilize, and extract almost as one, getting them out of that conference room, getting them out to that HCCCP out of site three. And so they that's exactly what they did. They they were extremely minimal. Just just a bunch of law enforcement officers making it happen, bringing personal vehicles over, picking up. And then, so that is literally that access, assess, and stabilize is what occurred at that point. And then they extracted them via vehicle to the hard point on the corner where FD was set up. And then that's where they got their evacuation capability, evacuation transport capabilities were just all there. And that's where they were able to do a little bit more, hand them off, and then the rest of it was in route. But yeah, so that, that portion was like they got them alive to the FD guys. I think another, like, I mean, not really on the access or this, but talking to those firefighters and those guys, the thing that kind of stood stood apart in my mind was when you know, they're saying, like, hey, man, we just did what we did every day. Yep. Like, we didn't go grab an active shooter kit. We didn't go do, like, there's like we just grabbed our bags yeah. and did what we know how to do. Yep. I think that's huge. I think a lot of times people are, like, overcomplicated. Over, like, hey, I need this kit. Or, you know, it's like, man, like, just stop some bleeding, start some breathing. Yep. Get them out of there. Like, you know, quick more. And I think, you know, one part, so I'm just going to go ADHD on you because I have, I have a note on the bottom here. My hands are is, shaking from poop and coffee. 
Dude, we said it was loco, man. I might pee myself. <laughs> that's that's so fine, dude. You're in the you're in the yeah you're in the rescue lab. You are going. I know. I'm sweating. Yeah. yeah, I'm a little going too, man. It's pretty good. One of the things that I think can't be underestimated is we, we talk all the time. We brought it up a lot. Like you need to have the capability of stopping bleeding, right? Yeah. Whether that's a tourniquet, that's uh, something that's not compressible, and you need a pack, or you need to pack with a, a hemostatic or whatever. Like you need to have that capability. But that's also bringing up San Bernardino. Not what we see in the majority of all law enforcement, right? A lot yeah. of it is chest hits right so we san bernardino no tourniquets applied no tourniquets needed right we see that although in the military where that's an exposed area and a lot more ground level explosives that tourniquets are number one right but that does not that is not what it is on the civilian side um although you have to have that capability but you're just not going to see it with the fluency at all but what you will see a ton of is chest wounds and that's yeah. obviously in san bernardino we saw it and guys in las vegas saw it. we see it on all of these instances but you, know, you know what the great thing about that is treatment is just getting him to the doctor that's so, it so, so that, fast like, so that's what i was going to say but you know man, even that's an easy one get him out of here that and that's the main decision it's the decision that becomes the treatment which is i think this brings up like what we were talking about the other day about you know when we're in that access and that stabilize or excuse me the assess and stabilize part of that assess is your triage right yeah yeah when yeah we're yeah. talking about this it's like yes you know, honestly like i'm a horrible medic i have no clue what the green or the blue like i just like He's real bad. Stable, unstable, he's out of here. You know, it's like... So, okay, so this brings up... It's a good point, like assessing, like a triage is part of your assessment. Exactly, and so even in a lot of our kits, we, when we're teaching and when we're looking at building some new stuff, we don't really get into a green and yellow. If you're that first guy in and you're rapidly moving through, just trying to find out what in the hell you're in now, right? So you're one of the first guys that are in there, whether you're FD or you're PD or you're following in through a cordon or whatever the hell it is, and you need to roll in not knowing anything of what you're going to find as far as casualty count or how many or what's going on and you're moving through that thing whether it's a warm zone or, or you know on a regular rescue task force is like you it is a really good idea not to get all like oh god they've got to be uh, oh walking anybody that can walk please walk to me like you look at Virginia Tech you look at those instances that's not a thing right it's not like a car accident so as you're moving through dynamically you'll have some scattered over here maybe some scattered over here but really the two biggest things I can say and then I, I have a question for you is if you can mark the ones that are dead Yep, it's big. Because that's been an issue. We, it's been an issue time after time after time. first? Right, right. Like, you know, is time after time. is like if you can mark them dead, the amount of people that go back over and check people recheck, that aren't marked. Or it, try and extract them. Like, or try and extract them, right? So if you can mark people dead, then that's going to save so much time on people that are following behind you because mm-hmm. comms aren't awesome. You're like, hey, I've got this many. People, it's a dynamic situation. It's going to be people from other cities, other accounts, all this other stuff in these ends. But if you can mark somebody dead and you can mark somebody red, like, so that way, anybody that's falling behind you, you're like, just find who's red, right? And if you see somebody that's not tagged and they're looking like shit, that may have been one of the yellows that's red now or whatever. But here's the deal. Take the fucking red ones, which brings us to the people who got shot in the box. I used to hear this all the time at your place, man. And that was like the biggest thing. Like if you guys, because not everything in the military and special operations forces, and you'll be going to places where you may not have your regular armor on. You may not be, you may be doing little vis stuff. You may be doing whatever, but that's the same thing for the civilians, whether you're working narcotics, you're working other, all this other stuff is if you're shot in the box, like whoever's listening to this needs to realize like whether you're an untrained medical guy, you're a first responder, you're an EMT paramedic, whatever. If you're shot in the box and you're out of the hospital, like that, that is a priority, man. You need to go. You need to go. There's nothing I can do for you. 
right? Except get you out here really quick. You know, you can look at people like, oh, I'm going to put this chest seal on or I'm going to put this needle on. But, like, when you just took two five five six, it's like some of the cases in San Bernardino. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe that helps a little bit. I don't know. But what helped was you got them the hell out of yeah. there as quick as possible and yeah. to a trauma center. Real quick. Yes. Zero to 100. That's it, man. Yeah. And and I think that that's... I think that's like, that breaks it down to, like, what that red tape is in a that's situation it. like that. It's like, if they've got a hole in the chest and the abdomen... Like, they need to be gone right now. It's not your decision to make. Like, you don't, it doesn't really matter. Right. You, they it's just not need my to problem. Go. Right. I can't do anything. So get them out of there. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's good. Now, real quick on assessment, how would you train your operators? What do you, how do you uncomplicate that? So, like, for the regular patrol officer, for the regular SWAT operator, how do you control, like, the assessment? Because they don't have to follow a start and crap like that, man. I mean, it's, it, we kept it so simple. It's like you got holes in the chest. You know, and then you come up and you're rolling up and they've got altered mental status or they're unconscious. I mean, it's like there's really only two things that cause that. Right. A TBI, you know, a big one because mm-hmm. they're, they're out already, and then blood loss. Yeah. Basically, I mean, it's like maybe there's other stuff, but, you know, in general, trauma shots the chest, altered mental status, that is, we'll just say unstable. Yeah. And they need to go. Right. And, you know, if they're shot in the box and they're still talking to you, they're, they're maintaining, I would say they're urgent but stable. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, and a lot of cases, like, guys would end up, and I had even recently heard of an instance where a dude put his own tourniquet on himself, and while they were working on the evac thing, like, told the medic, like, you know I got shot, right? And he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, man, uh, I got shot in the thigh. And he's like, what? He already had his own tourniquet on. Yeah, he had his own tourniquet on and stuff like that. So, you know, and that's the other side is if you got somebody that you put a tourniquet on um, and they're still talking to you, like, yeah. They're probably pretty good right now, so yeah. they can move that way down. But you shot in the box, you, you just say, are they stable or unstable? That's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah. And a lot of it's a gut sort of feeling, right? Yeah, I think another, like, to go, like, one step deeper on that, you know, once you're handing them off, as just, you know, you rolled up on this guy. He's been shot in the chest, shot in the abdomen. He was kind of talking to me. He was okay. And then a couple minutes later, he kind of crumped out. Mm-hmm. Like, that's important stuff to pass on because, you know, that's going to be the guy that they want to prioritize for surgery because he's been maintaining, but now he's, de- he's dropping down. So he, you know, that's the guy that are probably going to want to throw on the table pretty quick. Yeah. Because there's a good chance for them to, to work them up and, you know, yeah. make it happen. So. No, that's cool. Um, then the, obviously the extract is pretty easy, man. It's just it's just variable movements, man. Am I yeah. dragging them out with webbing and ERS? Am I throwing them on a on a fox trot? Some sort of quick movement to get them out of that environment that they are to where we can get into that kind of more evacuation. When I say evacuation too, it's not like. This, we're not really talking. Yeah, we're not like talking TAC. Yeah, yeah, we're not talking TAC evac or the evacuation care of TECC. We're like evacuation front to the handoff or to a CCP. Like, and then you yes. get rid of it, and then you go back into the building, and work the problem again. Right. Exactly. I also uh, want to add on the extract. This is where I want. It's like that's that bailout, the emergency bailout. Yeah. Like how do you extract your team rapidly mm-hmm. if you need to? Like, it might not be a medical problem yet, but yep. you're gonna create one. So yeah, you're exactly right. Being able to move your team in and out very, very quickly under haste, and I think. Interest. So what's interesting is, so, you know, this is probably pretty easy, and, and we'll start narrowing it down here in almost an hour. But um, the bailout capability, man, is we ended up throwing that right in the middle of, like, we gave a, the, yeah, so yeah, the scenario. It's so kind of day three of this last training course, and they've been, they're kind of spun up, they're running, they've been doing a couple scenarios, like starting on one hand, going up and down, and it was hot outside. And yeah, and we gave them kind of a, a little bit of an overview to where they thought it was going to be a complex rescue. Like, there's going to be some shit to this one. Yeah. And so they were kind of trying to pre-plan it and this and that. And then uh, right in the middle, we basically called, like, a bailout type of yeah. requirement. Like, you know, there's 
there was an unknown. There was a fact. There was an explosive. There was something that eminently you need to get your team out as quick as possible. Yeah. And it was crazy because like we had some incredible experienced dudes in there. But even with that, it was so out of nowhere. Like they had their plan in their head, yeah. but all of a sudden they had to switch to be like, "Well, what about like no? You got to go, 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 go!" Like and then then like the clock started ticking. Like we timed them to see, yeah. and all of them were like, "Holy crap, dude! That was that was a really difficult transition. Like it was just yeah, weird." Go from that you know that approach and that plan they had set to like. Crap! Like now we're just like, find an anchor, just go yeah. right. Find an anchor, get out a window. Like that. And it was interesting because it, it actually took them a little bit. Yeah, like get, like make a plan. Like oh crap! Like yeah. And how can how can I get the most people? And you know they're kind of doing one at a time. And then at the bottom they're like, why don't we just double that over and send and two people to time down? Yeah. And but it takes that type of like spontaneity in there to where they had no clue that was going to come yeah, up. Definitely got to rehearse that a couple times. To and be like, to be able to just to make it so yeah. it's muscle memory. Like boom, grab an anchor. Do I have enough to get two lines out that thing? And everybody just like as I'm getting an anchor, you should be hooking onto that freaking line, dude. Like it needs to be that quick because yeah. I can't go down till you're done. Yeah. Yep. You know, and pass over to you. Out, done. It is, and man. no one's looking. It's okay because no one's looking because they're all freaked out too. Yeah, yeah. but you know, coming up with a plan on that, being able to just out of nowhere in the middle of a scenario bust out that type of whatever your call is, and be is able to like reverse it as like you know your team internal, uh-huh. and then if other people out there don't have the capabilities, how do you plug them into that system too? Right, like that's your contingency on that one. It's like, yep, I've got three guys that don't have stuff. Like, how do I get them down? Right, you know, and make it easy because. Yeah. You know, we used to do kind of the mantra hitch. We have some other techniques. We'll put videos on of some techniques because we've been building on this for for quite a few years. But and it's a problem at all levels. Yeah. Like even really awesome teams that train on it, it still becomes an issue because under that much duress, like you were just clearing an area, or you're just taking care of a patient, or you're just doing whatever, and now all of a sudden, like literally, you don't know, but any second, like you could be in the middle of a, a of a collapse yeah. structure because of a bomb or something, right, or a vest or whatever that case may be. People aren't thinking awesome like they are thinking like oh shit man like i gotta go so even if you think like oh but there's already ropes going out there i'm gonna have everybody tie a munter yeah that's that's what we used to do to a certain yeah. extent but we saw so many times with very experienced people we're trying to get out that quick you know and if i'm the one tying the munter on that rope and i'm thinking like at any given second like i'm gonna go out down on this building yeah. you know within a collapse your mind's already like my mind's gone but i'm also looking at you i'm looking yeah. at ryan and mark and this and i'm thinking they can't go until i get down so like you've got a lot of pressure on you because like you need me to get down quick so yes, you right. can get down quick uh because we have limited ropes going out of there so we saw so many mistakes on munters that people that don't make mistakes on munters you know like all of a sudden it's like oh crap you know and they're trying to get up and they're shit or they're not on the rope the same side or something yep. different but yep. it's just like you have variables that you never have when you and mistakes happen in there pre-planned like yeah. And it's complex. And so, you know, your solutions to that are not going to be a complex problem. You know, your solutions on that have to be very simple. And that's where we pre-rig stuff on there to where you can clip in. It's already in a munter hitch, you know, whether it's a wrap ring or another carabiner or whatever, to where dudes can just clip clip in. Here's your break. Here's your dap. Go. That's it. You know, and, and we the times improved dramatically. But yep. uh, all right, man. Anything else? We'll, we'll have to do another one next week. But I think so, man. I'll, what else? I don't know. David, you're good. Yeah. All right. Guys, thanks. See ya.